And just like that, it's a Saturday. Saturday episode, Saturday quarantine episode. We're back. Episode 73, The State of the Universe. Listen, all the way back in the late 60s, there was a plan. And I almost said we had a plan, but that would imply I was alive in the late 60s, and I wasn't, okay? People who were alive in the late 60s, that's insane. That's nuts. Because when I think about being alive in the late 90s, I think I'm super old. When I, This crazy thing happens when there's kids in college, in college, who were born in the 2000s. Think about that. Anyhow, late 60s, there was a plan. The plan was we would be on Mars, have humans on Mars by 1983. That didn't happen. Hate to spoil it for you. Then, okay, 1989 comes along. George H.W. Bush has a plan. The Space Council will report back to me as soon as possible with concrete recommendations to chart a new and continuing course to the moon and Mars and beyond. His plan was to get to Mars by 2019. And his plan had something built into it. The thing that was built into it was we established base on the moon first, okay? A decade later, George W. Bush comes along and he also has a plan, okay? His plan is a little bit different. Today we set a new course for America's space program. We will give NASA a new focus and vision for future exploration. We will build new ships to carry man forward into the universe, to gain a new foothold on the moon, and to prepare for new journeys to the worlds beyond our own. George W. Bush's plans, while they, in theory, would involve eventual uh, exploration of Mars, that was by no means the focus. The focus was get us to the moon, set up infrastructure on the moon, and that's it. Then, Obama comes along, okay, and Obama revitalizes the idea completely. He says, no, 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 screw the moon. But I, I just have to say, uh, pretty bluntly here, we've been there before. There's a lot more of space to explore and a lot more to learn when we do. And he says, no moon, let's go to Mars. By the mid-2030s, I believe we can send humans to orbit Mars and return them safely to Earth. And a landing on Mars will follow. And I expect to be around to see it. Then, fast forward, Donald Trump gets in office. Donald Trump also has a plan. The plan is set up infrastructure on the moon. The directive I'm signing today will refocus America's space program on human exploration and discovery. It marks an important step in returning American astronauts to the moon for the first time since 1972 for long-term exploration and use. This time, we will not only plant our flag and leave our footprint, we will establish a foundation for an eventual mission to Mars. I forgot how much I love the way he says Mars. I haven't played that clip in a long time. I love the way he says Mars. To Mars. Mars to Mars to Mars. Oh my god. I love it. It's one of my favorite things If you can remember the Donald Trump presidency for any reason at all, it is the way he says Mars. I love it. 
it's one of my favorite things ever actually so what has happened how did we go from a time in the late 1960s where we are saying we're going to be on mars by 1983 then the date gets pushed to 2019 then to the 30s and now likely even further so what has happened why does it seem we set ambitious goals to get on our neighboring red planet and yet it fails every time there is something to be said about the politics okay and i talked about that on a previous episode with dr david fisher we talked at length about the way that presidents like to stake their claim and write their name all over the space program so that anything that gets achieved if it's monumental ideally it will be attached to their name and it will live in infamy and and as that lives in infamy you know everyone remembers the jfk speech about apollo everyone remembers it and that's very important for politics is to put your name on the space program and there's something to be said for the way that that dictates people's decision making but i brought the great nate stewart on today who is an operations planning flight controller at nasa's johnson space center and he talks about not only the politics that has kept us from embarking on a journey to Mars, but arguably the more important reason we haven't got there. The level of technological advancement that we don't necessarily have that we will need, okay? We could do a brute force method. We could dump $4 trillion into it. We could get people there, but that doesn't change the fact that there's a hurdle to overcome. And the hurdle isn't just money, it's technological advancement, it's carrying fuel, it's transporting people, it's transporting food, resources, landing on the planet, sending things there, communication satellites, the whole array of things. And he breaks it down for us today. Because I get this question all the time. Why haven't we been to Mars? Ever since I was a kid, they said we'd be to Mars. People that are 70 tell me that. People that are 10 tell me that. No one seems to understand though, what is actually holding us back? So Nate breaks it down. What's holding us back? What is the environment going to be like? How will we survive in it, etc. I hope you enjoy the episode, people. Please leave a rating. A rating. That's not a word. Please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts if you like the show. So also, join the mailing list, thestateoftheuniverse.com. If you like the show, if you support the show, please sign up for Patreon. Donate a dollar a month. It helps. Contribute to PayPal. Maybe you don't want to subscribe. Maybe you don't want to give me money every month. Maybe some months you don't like me. On PayPal, do a dollar, do two dollars of one every episode. I don't care what you do. Do something. Subscribe to YouTube. Thanks for listening, people. Uh, and give it up for the great Nate Nate Stewart. There are people on my actually, Facebook. Let me know because like oh, I'm gonna join. get bored at some point and like just I could I could take two years and just. Join a cult, a you sabbatical, know? yeah, a little cult yeah, sabbatical. Cult sabbatical, yeah. Cult sabbatical. That's a great idea. <laughs> oh my god, that's a fantastic idea. Honestly, though, cults are kind of like I. It's a little upsetting that cults have been kind of phased out. Like you don't see many cults anymore, you know. Cult, yeah. like it'd be cool if there was a bunch of cults that one could uh like join. Like if they were in the cl- in the classified section or something of the newspaper. Yeah. And you're like, a guidance counselor in high school, you know, like recommended colleges and yeah. jobs, but also cults. That's different. You know, yeah, right different cults. Like, recruiters. what do you want to do? You got a yoga cult or you could do the tiger cult. You yeah. could do like the, I don't know, all sorts of different. Like that's in Texas. I bet people are still culting up. Oh, I'm sure there's cults out here. Oh, there's definitely sure. West Texas, Texas. got to be cults. Gotta yes. Be. 
Undoubtedly. Just got to find them. Yeah. So I wanted to bring you on, Nate, because one of the questions I get a lot from people of all demographics, this is like an interesting uh, topic of, of, of Mars. Like not, not only the question of when are we going to Mars and how will we get there, but a really often I get a question of why haven't we been to Mars yet? And the mm. reason I tend to get this question from like people of every demographic is because throughout the last probably 60 years, the concept of going to Mars has been sinusoidal in NASA's sort of plans. And not, not just yeah. NASA's plans, but like space, the spaceflight community in general. Yeah. Right? And so um, to start the episode, I'm sure that you're familiar with this, but I just want to uh, go through a, a small timeline real quick so people can get up to speed. Um, I went through the last couple presidents, not the last couple presidents, probably the last <laughs> couple decades worth of presidents, yeah. and sort of looked at what was their stance on Mars. How did their administration handle the concept of Mars? Yeah. And so I didn't know this, but by the late 1960s, NASA managers had begun drawing up ambitious plans to set up a manned moon base by 1980. I didn't know that was a plan in the late 60s. They had a lot of really ambitious goals uh, through the Apollo era that were all cut short by Nixon in favor of, uh, of the shuttle and yes. an eventual space station. But yeah, they had they had moon, they had lunar bases, lunar outposts, they had Mars plans and everything. And uh, Dr. Werner von Braun actually... I think he was like the first one to ever like publish like a mission profile of like what it would take to get to Mars. And I think that came out like 1959. So 10 years before we even got to the moon, he was already thinking, you know, how are we going to get to Mars? What's it going to take? Right. And at this exact time, um, it was also a plan to get astronauts to Mars by 1983. <laughs> right. Can you like put that into some perspective and in, into your own head, people that are listening? 1983, it, it wasn't. Just looked at it as a plan, though, right? At the time, like, this was a realistic goal that people thought we could achieve, get to Mars yeah. by 1983. Um, and here we are today, and we're still struggling to get to Mars. I mean, fast forward, like you said, in uh, in Nixon nixed the – you like the little pun there? You like that? <laughs> that's, that's good. That that's plan. good, yeah. Uh, Georgia H.W. Bush came along, and on July 20th, 1989, the 20th anniversary of the first manned moon landing – he announced uh, the Space Exploration Initiative, which um, called for the construction of the space station, called Freedom, and eventual mm -hmm. permanent presence on the moon, and by 2019, a manned mission to Mars. Okay? <laughs> well, I came and went. So we know that didn't happen. Yeah. Right? Space Station Freedom is what eventually evolved into the ISS after many replans and many, many years. Yes. And so uh, the, the price tags on that mission to Mars by 2019, which never happened, was $500 billion over 20 to 30 years. All right? Lots of money. That's I, I believe I've done this. Maybe you know the figure. I think I've done this calculation before. Do you know how much Apollo costed, the entire program costed in $2020? Do you know? I don't know. I think I've done the calculation before, and it turned out to be like $160 billion or something. I remember it being less than Jeff Bezos's, or like right on the order of Jeff Bezos's net worth. I remember oh, wow. that being it because I, I, it's so it's funny to me that he could fund the entire Apollo. <laughs> he program, could fund the Apollo program, which I mean, it's uh -huh. just hilarious. And then George W. Bush came along, and many people know the 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 manned mission to Mars got thrown about. Okay, and in favor went the manned mission to the moon. We wanted to put men back on the moon. And, and use that as training ground to get back to Mars. 
mm-hmm. in short, Obama came along. He nixed that idea. He instituted an asteroid mission. So, so uh, can you speak to that? What what was his uh, plans in that regard? Do you know? Uh, was that the like asteroid capture mission that they wanted to do, where they they wanted to send some probe out to redirect an asteroid, and I think they wanted it to uh, like get caught in lunar orbit. Yes, yeah, and, and um, the the policy is a little fuzzy on. So I, I NASA obviously um, they have a decent website for this sort of thing, but it's not great. And the way yeah. in which they describe, and that's why I asked you because I didn't know if you knew. And so the fact that like you don't have a concrete idea and I don't have a concrete idea indicates to me that there probably wasn't a concrete idea. Um, <laughs> Doctor, it's one of Fisher, those one of those later goals that everyone's yeah. like, oh, we'll figure that out when we get there. I'm sure Doctor David Fisher has like eighteen thousand documents <laughs> on what the plan was, and I can ask yeah. him next time we get him on. But as far yeah. as I know, it the the website NASA's website says focus on getting humans to an asteroid by 2025. Does that mean getting humans physically at an asteroid, or does that mean getting human spacecraft to an asteroid? I don't know. No one knows. But uh, anyway, so in favor of a mission to the moon, Obama wanted to use some infrastructure to get to an asteroid and eventually to Mars by 2030. That got nixed when President Donald Trump came in, and we, we're here today. We're going back to the moon. Okay? Mm-hmm. And so I, I wanted to get you on to talk about this pro- this weird timeline. Okay? So first off, what is the purpose of why is it that that every time we come up with this idea let's get to mars let's get to mars it always seems to be nixed it always seems to be uh thrown out and there's a multitude of reasons that we can mm-hmm. talk about but why is it that we always come back to this idea and and spaceflight experts come back to this idea people in the spaceflight community people who are actually building rockets engineers etc always come back to the idea that we should establish significant uh infrastructure in terms of moon exploration before mm. we try to venture off. Can you speak so, to that a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, Mars is always kind of the end goal, not the end goal, but like the big, you know, light at the end of the tunnel that we really want to get to. Um, but you can't, like you said, there's infrastructure to get there. And so first you got to go to the moon. And before you even go to the moon, you've got to spend time in low earth orbit. You've got to do long distance space flight. And it's easier to do that close to home, 250 miles above our heads. So that's, that's the other thing. You'll notice that it was always Moon, Mars, and for a while there in the 70s and 80s and 90s, it was, uh, you know, shuttle and space station. Mm-hmm. So that would, that's what needed to happen first. And that actually did happen. And we're, you know, we're well underway in that, almost to the point where we're beyond that. But then it becomes, you have to, you know, even if you want to go, you can't go straight to the Moon. You have to go to, or you can't go straight to Mars. You have to go to the Moon. You have to learn how to live in a, you know, foreign environment for a long period of time with some gravity, you know, on the space station is zero G and we're pretty good at that. We've done, you know, we have 12 data sets for one sixth G and we have nothing for one third G. So that's something that we need to expand upon. And then of course, beyond the science and the exploration is every president wants to be the one that leaves their stamp on NASA and the nation's space policy and have these big grand endeavors, just like JFK had. Everyone's been trying to emulate that. And so they come in and instead of continuing something that already has infrastructure in place for the last four or eight years, they don't want the previous person to get credit for it. They want to be the person to take credit for it. So they kind of just dismantle everything they did and come up with their own goal, which is typically just flip-flopping, moon to Mars, moon yes. to Mars, moon to yes. Mars. Um, yeah, and if, if people are interested in, in a more long, in-depth conversation about that, I did a show with Dr. David Fisher, like, I don't know, episode 67 or something, um, where we 
talk about that essentially the whole time because he's a historian in that regard and he he mm -hmm. knows a lot about these sort of inner workings um, that got us there. But there are a few things that that an exploration project Artemis will help us set up that will really push the envelope further to Mars, okay? And I wanted to discuss a few of those and why they're important, right? And one of them is the gateway. A lot of people mm -hmm. think that the gateway is going to be a very important uh, piece of infrastructure that not the gateway itself will will help us in terms of mar Martian exploration, but the concept behind building a, a, a smaller uh, space station, if you will, around a different body is going mm -hmm. to be imperative when we when we travel to Mars. Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of benefits to the gateway. First off, uh, especially Administrator Bridenstine has really been pushing that the gateway is something that hopefully cannot be canceled when a new administration comes in. Because that's the whole thing, you know, someone comes in after Donald Trump, and I mean, come on, it's Donald Trump, they're going to want to wipe away everything Trump did. Yeah, and, and kind of try to start fresh. So we're really trying to push things forward that have bipartisan support that we can point to clear examples and say this will help in whatever the next mm -hmm. goal is. How do you do that? Like in terms of like a, a what, how, do you build it into future budgets? Like you know, one of the biggest things that I see a problem with is that it if it almost feels like the science, specifically the NASA budget, shouldn't be tied to the same. This is such a tough problem to solve in terms of policy. Like I would like if it was more long term. Right. Yeah. But then you have a problem where then one president could say set what the long term goals are for a very long time. Exactly. Um, so it, it seems it almost seems like there should be a, a like a, a God, I hate bureaucracy, but like an oversight committee that that could set goals going forward. That was primarily consisted of uh, scientists, engineers and people who you knew could set feasibly realistic goals for the future. Yeah. And so, and NASA reports directly to the president, to the executive office. So basically, whatever the president says is what we have to do. So you would basically have to reset up that structure and make it, I don't know, some congressional thing that we report to. I don't know. So, so okay. So you, you're saying that uh, Jim Bridenstine wants mm -hmm. to really set forward the goal of the gateway and in a way that, that we will continue pushing uh, towards it. How do you do that? in the age of, of switching presidents? Like, how do you ensure that something is going to continue to get support? You get a lot of congressmen from both sides of the aisle on your side. And so Reinstein, he was a congressman before being uh, selected as administrator. Mm -hmm. And so he knows how politics works. He knows people in Washington. He knows how to get this kind of stuff done. And so that's been his really big goal is like, we're not just going to shove through legislation or shove through, you know, budgets to get what we want right now. We're also thinking long term. And we're putting together budgets that will continue to help us, you know, two years, four years, five years mm -hmm. down the road. I see. So can you describe what the gateway is for someone who's listening and might not know? Yeah. So the gateway is basically a small orbiting outpost around the moon. Um, it's going to be unmanned most of the time. Uh, so it'll be largely autonomous, which is also something that we need to get better at for going to Mars. Uh, and basically, it'll be, it'll be like a little arrival station. So we'll send crews from... They'll launch from Kennedy in Florida. They'll fly out to the moon. They'll dock with the gateway. Um, they'll stay on gateway for a couple of weeks, uh, you know, three or four astronauts. And then two of them or so will probably take a landing craft down to the lunar surface and perform expeditions on the lunar surface, hopefully eventually building out um, infrastructure for uh, a lunar outpost and a base actually on the moon. 
Uh, and then they'll fly back to the gateway, you know, hang out with their crew, do some more experiments, and then fly back. So it's basically like that intermediary stop. Instead of just going straight to lunar surface, you can hang out at the gateway for a little while. I see. And and um, how big will it be? Like will it smaller, be a space smaller, station? It'll be a space station. It'll be smaller than the, the ISS. I'm not sure the exact final dimensions. I want to say something like a third of the size. Mm. Uh, so it's definitely much smaller. Uh, more utilitarian for sure. Yeah. Okay. That's not the only piece of infrastructure we need to develop or that we want to develop before embarking on the, the Martian journey, right? There's also mm-hmm. the the space launch system, the SLS, and Orion. Mm-hmm. Now, I I get often confused. I, I don't know how people like you keep all the all these entities in your head, but like um I get confused when when I'm talking about sort of the infrastructure behind actually getting humans to space, right? When okay. you're talking about SpaceX, when you're talking about uh, Blue Origin, when you're talking about, you know, all of these different companies who are vying and they all have different rockets, 17 rockets apiece, and they all have different names for them, um, yeah. that I get confused. So can you break down why why this is important and mm-hmm. how it ties into sort of the new age of, of NASA's infrastructure? Yeah. So every rocket we have that is currently operational is a low earth orbit rocket for humans. We have rockets that can take probes, you know, and things out to deep space, but nothing that can take a human rated vehicle with humans on it anywhere further than a couple hundred miles above the earth. Um, The Falcon heavy, I think probably could do a lunar mission. You might need two of them, something like that, but NASA doesn't want to go for that. And SpaceX is facing those out there. The BFR, which I forget what they call it now, Again, the names, they change constantly. That one is going to be lunar rated and deep space rated, but that's many years away. SLS supposed to launch, I think, have its first launch at the end of this year, which is probably not going to happen. But that is the only vehicle that human beings can ride out to the moon right now. And it'll be the first one we've had since we launched the Saturn V for the last time in 1973. So for the past 50 years, we've been stuck in low Earth orbit. Even if we wanted to go further, we couldn't. So that's the big push with SLS. Orion is the capsule that's going to sit on the very tippy top of SLS and be able the astronauts ride in and cruise out to the moon in similar, very similar in design to the Apollo capsules. The, would you would you say that those two are the the most important in terms of infrastructure to push us further than the moon? The gateway, uh, near term, the, the gateway, near term, near term, yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, gate, gate, gateway, SLS, and Orion. Yeah. Gateway, I would say, is probably more medium to long-term importance, but near-term importance, you know, especially if we want to get there by 2024, we need SLS operational. We need to do test flights with it. And then we need to put human beings on it. Orion's ready to fly. Orion flew an orbital flight test in like 2014. um, And it's been, it was deemed operational ready to go, I think sometime last year. So Orion's ready. It's just SLS that we're waiting on. And SLS and Orion both, I think are left over from, from George, Bush's plan. And then Obama, those were pieces that Obama kept through his plan. And then they survive to the, you know, the next swing of the pendulum to the moon, pretty much their, their intended purpose in, in Trump's administration now. Yeah. So it's interesting how those, how those pieces of the puzzle, you know, can somehow slip through the cracks and actually survive and mm-hmm. 20 you, years later, get to where they're supposed to be. <laughs> if you had to guess, okay. If you, not guess. If you had to make a, a prediction, 
Okay, I've talked to, and I know that you're you're working at NASA, and I don't, and I can edit this out if you want me to. Um, if you don't, if, if just I'm, start the bleep sound right now. If I'm asking you a question that that you can't <laughs> answer, just tell me. Um, okay. Your prediction? Do you think I've talked to many people? I've talked to people who've written books on the moon. I've talked to spaceflight historians, etc. They <laughs> all doubt the 2024 deadline. What yeah. do you think about the 2024 deadline? So I think people my age are very optimistic and would like and think that we could do 2024. Mm-hmm. People who have been around the block before are, are more pessimistic, mm-hmm. you know, and they, yeah, they've yeah, seen yeah. this. They've seen the pendulum swing a couple of times, you know, yes. they know how this goes. I think the agency is really pushing for it. And we did finally get somewhat of a budget increase. Not enough, but it's a start. Um, now with coronavirus and all this, you know, the agency going to pretty much mandatory telework across across the agency. I believe the work, the teams working on SLS have stopped, you know, for safety reasons. Mm-hmm. So 2024 is continually, you know, fading into the distance. Yeah. I was, I was hopeful up until like a month or two ago that we could probably do 2024. At this point, I don't know if 2024 is going to happen. How it would the- take, it would take a lot of rebounding work after this. And it, you know, it all depends on how long, quarantine lasts and coronavirus and all this kind of stuff lasts. So yeah. How is that affecting operations? Uh, I know that I have several collaborators that work at NASA facilities and they are all shut down, not Mm -hmm. allowed in, not allowed, uh, not allowed to travel, not allowed. Like some of them even said that they have to report. Um, if I've talked to a collaborator that works at Goddard and they have to report if they even have like, family members visiting if they are to go into one of the labs um yeah. stuff like that so is that like severely i know that you know we're approaching a time where spacex is is uh getting ready to to do a crude mission right i think in mm-hmm. may yeah and so do so you spacex first- still has their workers going full time they had workers in houston that they pulled back for to go back to Hawthorne to work for them. Mm. They've been, they've been kind of getting some flack for that for, you know, unsafe working conditions, I guess. But it's Elon Musk, you know, you work for SpaceX. What did you expect? (laughs) You don't get many holidays. Right. Yeah. Okay. So the, the, the largest hurdle for Martian exploration to date has Mm. not, you could say it's been infrastructure. Um, but I think the infrastructure is indicative of there being just a lack of money. Yeah, right. money and support, I th- I'd say, would be the main drivers yeah, for because why if it doesn't happen. We could have developed the infrastructure if you were willing to dump a trillion dollars into the development, right? Yeah. Um, but you know better than I do that NASA is working on a budget, and that budget tends to slow things down. I mean, which is fine. I get you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be dumping five trillion dollars into probably any one thing in all of government. I think that <laughs> most people would agree that. That's a slippery slope if you start, you know, yeah. dumping uh, that much money into things. And so, and so that was something that Bridenstine, again, made very clear uh, when he came in into uh, the office of the administrator a few years ago was that we were not going to cannibalize other other projects for mm-hmm. lunar exploration. So we're not going to slash the science budget, you know. Yeah. We're not going to cut out the ISS and defund that. We're going to keep everything we're doing and we're going to find new money. And we're going to put that towards lunar exploration, which is a very hard thing to do, but it helps it survive and it, it helps the agency as a whole. Yeah. So I know that I've looked on the some of the NASA documentation 
budget documentation. And the Mars mission is part of an overall human spaceflight program uh, with, I think, like, on paper costs of, like, $200 billion, right? Mm-hmm. But estimated costs into the, by experts, into the $500 billion or even a trillion type of range, right? Okay, yeah. And so that's a really big limiting factor. So, yeah, and those numbers sound really intimidating, but spaceflight is expensive. And so keep in mind the ISS, building the ISS through construction and everything is $100 billion. That's a $100 billion vehicle that we've been running for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So if you think about if, you know, <laughs> what was the first number? Was about $100 billion? Or $200 something? billion is 200. like the published figure. So yeah. double the price of the ISS to get to Mars. I think that's really conservative. Yeah. I think $500 billion would probably be more likely. But even then, that's only five times the cost of the International Space Station. Right. That's not that bad. Yes. Yeah. Spaceflight is expensive. And, uh, yeah. It's, it's funny because spaceflight also seems to be one of the few things in government that has bipartisan support. Mm-hmm. right like yeah. even so si- even like fundamental hard sciences don't always have bipartisan support right if yeah. you're if you're talking about uh like you uh, you see this recently with um you know issues that in regards to the cdc uh you know you, there's not always bipartisan support on funding agencies that some people will consider uh hard science but there mm-hmm. always seems to be bipartisan support on space flight well i think it's you know there's a lot of reasons for it. You know, everyone had that phase as a kid when they want to be an astronaut, you know, and they see a rocket launch and they see these pictures from space and it's beautiful and it's exciting, you know, and people, they just get excited by yes. it. You know, there's something inherently kind of cool about it. You've got astronauts, especially a manned space flight, you know, astronauts are seen as like national heroes, you know, and they're kind of carrying the torch for the country. Whereas mm-hmm. a scientist in a lab coat doesn't get that same admiration from the general public. Yes, you know. it's it comes down to exploration, right? And scientists yeah. would argue that that they're doing, you know, a scientist in like a, you know, at the CDC, say, who is yeah. right now trying to to yeah. understand. They're, they're trying to save humanity. I yeah. mean, they're doing an incredibly and, important job. And, and they, they, would, they don't get the same recognition and admiration. Right. And I think it comes down to complexity, right? Because mm-hmm. I've, I've thought about this a lot in terms of like, how do you convey that your thing you're studying is important? How do I tell people that studying pulsars is important? That's a tough yeah. thing to do, right? How do you tell people that, that that's actually worth their tax dollars? And that's really hard because in order for them to understand the importance of the exploration, they have to understand like 14 hours of supplementary, supplementary material. But yeah. in the case of Mars, it's, it, you get it, right? It's yeah. like a, a new it's horizon. Almost, it's almost inherent. You get yeah. it. You get the importance of branching out as a, as a species um, yeah. because it's like built into the DNA that, that we, we have. Um, exactly. And I, th- and I think spaceflight is really like a big, for lack of a better term, a media circus in a way. You know, you've got rockets launching and it's this big, huge, fiery explosion, you know. Yeah. You've got astronauts floating around being filmed in space, you know, beaming messages back. It's very public facing. It's very easy to see and kind of like bring it into your world and be like, be almost a part of it, you know. Yeah. Do you foresee that changing in your lifetime as spaceflight becomes, in my lifetime, as spaceflight becomes more like of the norm? More routine? Yeah. No, not in our life. I don't think it'll be so routine in our lifetimes that, you know, it'll be mundane. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I don't know. Looking back at history, that was a lot of the reason that Apollo was canceled early. You know, after the first couple moon missions, they didn't even show it on, on television networks. Right. Um, so I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe it will be. You know, maybe I'm being too optimistic. 
Yeah. So we, we've talked about the the infrastructure that needs to be developed, right? But there's even more infrastructure that's really going to need to be developed before we can do the Mars thing with with ease, I'll say. And it's never going to be easy, but it can always be harder, right? We mm-hmm. can always make it a little easier. So one of the, the ways in which we need to improve is actually designing rockets for long-term spaceflight that can actually get us places in reasonable amounts of time, right? Mm-hmm. So can you speak to the sort of developments that are being done or need to be done before we can make these long-term flights more accessible? Yeah, so right now a flight to Mars would take us, with our current technology, probably about eight months. With some realistic modifications and innovations in technology that could happen, you know, in the foreseeable future without too much investment, you could probably bring that down to like six months or so. Um, but to get to something, you know, three months, two months, or even in a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. that's technology that is very far off on the horizon. And it's technology that people have been working on. You know, Franklin Chang Diaz, a former astronaut, has been working on, on a new type of propulsion, and I'm not sure what kind, you know. I'm not an engineer. I don't know a lot of this. But um, he's been working on since, like, 1979. Yeah. So you can see that, you know, there's a very long lead time there to try and get something that would that would get us to Mars quickly. Yes, and and I, I his his um his company is trying to come up with ways to do electric p- propulsion. Uh I believe. So so mm-hmm. changing the way that we currently do chemical reactions to power rockets. So I, I wrote down some numbers here because I, I found I didn't know this. I looked it up and I found this very interesting. The Saturn V uh fuel supply to get us to the moon is insane so here's here's what i found to get just to get us to the moon off the surface of the earth and to the moon sixty-six thousand seven hundred seventy gallons of liquid hydrogen fuel 19,359 gallons of liquid oxygen 260,000 gallons of liquid hydrogen 80,000 gallons of liquid oxygen 318,000 gallons of liquid oxygen wait did i just say the same thing over and over over again that makes no sense I must have read hydrogen. that down wrong. That's weird. <laughs> uh, and 203,000 gallons. Might, maybe this, this is by stages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're right, you're right, you're right. Yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah, so there's multiple stages to the, to the. yes, you're 100% right. That's why I wrote it down that way. Good job. It's almost like you are an expert and I'm not. Um, and 203,000 gallons of kerosene fuel. So to go to Mars, based off of, of the calculations I've done, you're going to have to quadruple that amount to go there and come back. That's far too much weight in fuel that you would yeah. ideally want to carry with you. You would have to launch multiple Saturn Primes, multiple SLSs. Yes. So chemical propulsion is is frankly going to be out of the question unless you want to do it brute force. Um, or well, and see, so something like the Gateway could help out there if we can get an outpost on the Moon and we can use water to extract the hydrogen and oxygen elements you could have a refueling station at the gateway so basically a gas station at the moon and going from the moon to mars is much cheaper uh fuel wise than going directly from earth to mars because you're out of it takes a lot of fuel to get out of earth's gravity well right but the moon is a very small gravity well so it doesn't take that much so you use all your fuel to get to the moon then you really fill up and then you go to mars so that's one way but it doesn't slow down i mean you'd have to burn more fuel to go faster and it still doesn't really solve the timing issue it just helps you with the amount of fuel that you'll need yes so one of the 
things that that is really being worked on is is some way to do solar electric propulsion. So is there a way that we can use solar energy to power a rocket? You would have to have considerably less fuel on board, and you wouldn't necessarily need um, need to combust things in the typical way that that we combust things. Okay, and so like you said, this is being worked on by uh, Franklin Chang Diaz, and right now he suffer his idea and his company's idea at Astra, I think, is a company. Um, mm-hmm. Admittedly, they'll admit this suffer from a big problem. The problem is the amount of energy that they would need to actually sort of fuel their 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 mechanism to actually produce energy to actually produce thrust um, requires too much input for solar energy. So you couldn't you would need actually a nuclear reactor on board in order to, to get the amount of energy you needed to swirl the plasma around magnetic fields to create the thrust that you needed to create. And I think. We're very far away from not just being able to put a nuclear reactor on board a space uh, a spaceship, but also coming to bipartisan agreement to put a nuclear reactor on. A I think I think that would be the largest limiting factor is getting people to agree that hey, we're going to put a nuclear reactor on this thing, strap it on top of a bomb, launch it up in the atmosphere. If something goes wrong, it's going to spread all over the Earth. You know, it's yes. fine once you're out towards the moon or once you're out towards Mars, but it's the whole getting it into space thing that's that's really going to be iffy. And good luck getting agreement. Yeah, from all so, of, not just our government but the entire world to be able to do something like that. Right. So, um, I I have the numbers here for how much let it will it will cost it will take about one tenth the amount of propellant. So about one tenth the amount of fuel. If we can, if we can wean ourselves off of uh, simple chemical engines and onto engines that can use solar energy to actually do the 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 swirling of plasma and produ- production of thrust, um, so one tenth is a big deal. I mean, when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of of <laughs> yeah. gallons of fuel, one tenth is a is a big savior. And um, so let's imagine that we have some fuel source developed let's imagine we even do the brute force mechanism of of bringing um chemical propulsion with us what's the actual trip going to be like to get there it's going to be boring and how will we do it <laughs> it's going to be boring. you're going to have to <laughs> watch tiger spending... king <laughs> yeah you're going you're gonna to need a lot of netflix documentaries to keep yourself occupied yes uh so i mean you know let's assume it's eight months um so you'll have an orion capsule and you'll likely have some sort of larger service module cargo hold. Um, eight months in deep space is a lot of time. It's been done. We've spent we sent astronauts who spent a year in space. Um, you're gonna have a smaller crew though, so you'll only have probably four people. Yeah. Uh, there's not much to look at because the Earth is gonna be far away. Mars is gonna be far away. You don't have the spectacular views like you do out of the cupola and the ISS. Uh, you'll be doing a lot of science for sure. Uh, a lot of zero G research, but again, you know, they'd have to, every science experiment that you take with you is taking up mass that could be held by consumables or by emergency equipment, you know, so you'd have to do the numbers and figure out what's appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, exercising is going to be much more difficult. Um, the bone loss, muscle loss, that kind of thing isn't an issue anymore on the ISS, but we have them exercising two hours a day on a variety of different machines that take up a lot of space and a lot of when, mass. When you say exercising, just an aside, mm-hmm. what do you mean? Like, what are they doing? 
So there's, there's a bike on station, there's a treadmill and there's a weightlifting machine and they do. So the bike and the, the bike and the uh, treadmill are cardio and then the weightlifting is weightlifting. And so they do one weightlifting and one cardio every single day. Hmm. Um, two hours total of, of those two activities. What is the treadmill like? Can you explain? I don't understand. Yeah, so the treadmill, the treadmill is actually mounted. If you're looking at the, again, there's no up in space, but if you imagine that you're standing in the space station, the treadmill is actually mounted on the wall. So they're actually running, uh, horizontally in the station and they have this kind of belt thing that goes around their waist. Mm -hmm. And I think it has shoulder straps as well. And then it has like these chains that basically like bungee you, to the floor of the uh, of the treadmill and hold you down and that's actually what gives you the load because running doesn't do anything if you're not going up and down right you know? yeah because you yeah, want to yeah. have those stresses on your bones uh-huh. and your muscles and so that's the load that they use do they know run. like how many calories that burns compared to running on a treadmill on earth like what is the actually actual energy output i i don't know that that answer but i could ask a bme and i'm sure they know the answer yeah, that's a, and I'm sure I'm sure it's probably comparable. I mean, assuming what load you put, you know, if you put a load that is equivalent to one G, then I would assume it'd be very close to the same. I don't know what load they run under. I would assume it's something close to one G, maybe not all the way to one G. Yeah. Um. So that's going to require a lot of infrastructure to actually, because you know, I think when a lot of people picture. When I, even when I, I'm even guilty of this, even though I, I know, you know, a fair bit about space flight infrastructure and what it would take to get places. When I think of people traveling long distance in space, like to Mars, I think of them like in this little pod, like all just <laughs> them, like in a little pod, there's nothing in there. Yeah. They're just chilling out. like a uh, Mandalorian almost, you know, I haven't seen Mandalorian yet. So don't spoil it. Oh it's my. on my quarantine watch list. I'm waiting. I, I mean, this is perfect time. Yeah. I was waiting until I had nothing to do for a week so I could use the free trial and watch it all in a week Ooh, and not have to pay Disney any money because Disney's not that great of a, of a company. I don't want to support them that much. So but, you're just uh, going to cancel it after that? I'm going to cancel it, yeah. Oh I'm going to watch God. it all in less than a week and then I'm going to cancel Disney. I don't even like Disney movies. My favorite Disney movie is, uh, is The Country Bears, and there's no support for that movie from Disney. Shame on you, Disney. Shame on yeah, you. Yeah, to be fair, I don't like any Disney movies, and I never watched them ever as a kid. Ever. Not ever. <laughs> My wife shames me all the time. She's like, didn't you see? I don't I don't even know a Disney movie to cite. Like, what's a <laughs> famous two. Disney movie? Yeah, I didn't you see, like, what are the classic ones? Uh, I, I really like Three Mulan Little Smurfs or something. What? Three Little Smurfs. <laughs> Mulan and Pocahontas were my two favorite ones growing yeah, up. Yeah, or also I could watch anything else, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like you could you could ask me to watch those things, but also I would rather watch tennis. And I can we do can we do a podcast episode where we just bash on Disney and I would love like that. It? We should just create a podcast called <laughs> Disney Sucks because Disney is honestly the worst. But I am subscribed to Disney Plus because they have Nat Geo stuff on there too. Oh, okay. And I love me some Nat Geo. Uh, <laughs> the movie Free Solo. You have to watch that one. I've seen that document. That is an incredible documentary. Yeah, that's a Nat Geo yeah. baby. It was um, on. It was on over like Christmas time for free or something. Nat Geo was playing it again, yeah. and because I like. I just no sat there. I just time. watched it again. Yeah, it was so good. It's there's so no better good. time to watch a guy fall off a granite cliff and die than during oh. Christmas time. Um. So. Spoiler alert: He survives. Well, why'd you spoil it? Now people would have thought he died. <laughs> and then they imagine how. Like uh, nervous they would have been the entire. They're expecting film. this fall. The like whole when time. is he gonna fall? When is he gonna fall? And he never falls. Uh, you ruined <laughs> it. Um, 
So anyway, you know, it's going to be a six to nine month journey to get there. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. How, how do you think we would actually set up the infrastructure to get there? Would humans be traveling with uh, the amount of cargo that they would actually need? Are so, we planning on setting up uh, space yeah. stations? What, what's the plan? So as far as I know, from a few lectures that I had a few years ago from people from NASA, but I, I, doing research for this, I struggled to find any of these presentations or videos or plans that mentioned any of this stuff. So I'm just going to tell you what I had heard, and who knows if it's real or not. Uh, what I had heard was basically, and this was before Gateway, so the first part, I guess, would be swapped with Gateway, but basically they'd launch Orion into low Earth orbit, and then they'd launch, you know, like a, a cargo resupply ship to give it more fuel and to fill up on on cargo, uh, because you want to launch it with the least mass as, po- with as least mass as possible, mm-hmm. uh, and then you fill up on mass, and then it would have some service module, which would be, you know, living quarters, uh, bathrooms, exercise equipment, you know. Yeah experimental chambers, whatever. Um, so I guess that first part would probably be replaced by gateway. So now you would launch Orion to gateway and then it would refuel there. You'd probably launch a resupply ship or whatever else is going to accompany it on the actual journey. They link, they dock together and then they would leave from the moon, travel to Mars, long, boring trip. Hope that no like solar particle events happen and mm-hmm. shoot you guys with a whole bunch of radiation. Otherwise you're fried. Uh, hopefully you get there. And uh, before, either while you're launching, so someone's traveling with you, or before you even launched, they would have sent uh, another ship to be in low Martian orbit. So basically like another resupply vehicle that you can also live in with a habitation area. So you can dock with that, expand a little bit, you know, spend a couple days, a couple weeks in low Martian orbit, make sure you got your landing site all figured out. And then you go in for landing with just the capsule or whatever landing equipment was on that that craft that you docked with. Um, ride that bad boy down to the surface. And then on the surface, hopefully you already have everything set up. So you have a habitation module that they previously launched. You've got, you've got consumables sitting there waiting on the surface. You've got fuel. You've got equipment. And you have a return vehicle, an ascent vehicle, a rocket, basically sitting on a patch just ready for you. So it's like you, right. you come into everything already being there. Um, the issue with all that stuff is, and and this can lead us down another rabbit hole of the, the tyranny of orbital mechanics is that if you want to do a mission, that's going to take you, you know, six to nine months to get to Mars using home and transfer, which is the most fuel efficient way to transfer orbits. You can only do that really every 26 months. So either they're going to launch all this stuff at the same time you're launching and it's basically traveling with you. And then you sit in their Martian orbit and watch it all descend to the surface and hopefully it's all right, and then you come and join it. Or they've launched this stuff two years before you even left the Earth, and it's been sitting in the Martian soil for two years, which means all that equipment, all that food, all you know, the rocket, everything has to be able to sit there and withstand Martian erosion, the huge dust storms they have, you know, the cold mm-hmm. temperatures, the radiation, the increased radiation in deep space and on Mars, and of course everything has to be stable. All the food has to be shelf stable for two plus years because it has to be stable for the two years it takes to get there and then however long you're going to be on the surface for right so that's a, that's a tough thing to do yeah, that's a, and then the inverse is an incredibly tough thing to do too which is launching everything at the same time exactly because you you don't want to be in a situation where you get to mars but some of your equipment has malfunctioned mm-hmm. or has you know yeah um, best case scenario is it fails in low earth orbit 
and you just scrub it and say, we'll go in two years again, you know? Yes. And but so if you're halfway to Mars, yeah, and, and, you know, something breaks down or, you know, one of your cargo things gets messed up, you know, what, what are you going to do at that point? Basically go to Mars, circle, and come back, I guess. Yeah, and so for that reason, there's there's a lot of talk about, and I've seen this, and, and you know, I, I share your sentiment, by the way. There's not much public information or uh, – Honestly, there's probably not much private information about what the plan is in terms of Martian exploration and travel. There's a mm-hmm. ton of information about the science. You can find like an endless amount of, of um, yeah. scientific goals. But on the engineering front, there's a lot of open questions because a lot of the questions before we can even begin to like ask a type of question like um, how are we going to get food <clears throat> there? We first have to figure out how we're going to even get enough food, say, to the moon which is, you know, Mm -hmm. three days away. Um, Before we can answer a lot of those questions, we have to answer them locally. And we haven't answered them locally. And so there's a lot of open-ended questions. So when I predict when we're going to actually see people on Mars, I I think Elon Musk is vastly overestimating. I was watching a video. It was from 2017. Mm Mm-hmm. It was like a TED talk and this guy was like, yeah, Elon told me he's going to be on Mars by 2025. And he's like, but I'm not as optimistic. So I think 2027. That's absurd. Seven years from now, we're going to be on Mars. Yes. We'll be, um, it'll be impressive if we get to the moon in 2024. You think it'll take three years until we get to Mars? Come on. Yeah, that's because people have this belief that technological innovation is exponential. Um, but that's not necessarily the case uh, when we're talking about space flight. Yeah, you know, there's 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 uh, timetables you, you have to to wait out. You know, like yeah. you said, you have a 26 uh, month gap in between launch cycles, and can maybe we should explain to people why that is in c- case they're confused. Um, do you have any great analogies? Because I I think I came up with a good good one to picture for people who who maybe don't know. I don't I don't have a great analogy. My analogy is basically that. The Earth is, you know, I mean, you've got two planets spinning in circles and they're concentric circles. Mm-hmm. The Earth is in the inner circle, so it's going a little bit faster. Mars is in the outer circle, going a little bit slower. So you can imagine that their orbits kind of, Earth will catch up and pass Mars and then it'll catch up again, you know. Exactly. So basically, when you launch, when you launch a rocket, you're going to launch from Earth and you have to launch ahead. You have to aim ahead of Mars because if you've got nine months, if you just launch at exactly where Mars is at that point, when you get to Martian orbit, Mars will be nine months ahead of you. So right. you really have to launch and you have to know the angle and you're going to launch, you know, ahead of where Mars is in its orbit. You're going to launch at an empty point in space mm-hmm. and hope that by the time you get there, Mars will also be there and you'll intersect Mars at that point. Um, that's my analogy. Yeah. I don't think it's that great. Did you, what's yours? I want to I know what yours is. NASCAR. That's NASCAR. mine. Oh, that's a good NASCAR. one. Yeah. So you picture yeah. two, picture two uh, cars on a, like a NASCAR circuit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. It's not circular, whatever. Um, going at, at varying speeds. You can imagine one on the inside of the track going faster than one on the outside of the track. And there's going to be times where they're separated b- by an incredible distance, but mm-hmm. there's going to be times where they're right next to one another, right? And so in orbital mechanics, you when you're launching s- spacecraft to one, one body to the next, you don't have to worry about this at the moon, uh, of course. Uh, you have to worry a little bit. Um, a little bit. You have to aim but, a little bit ahead of the moon. Yeah, but. but you don't have to worry about it on the same level as you do with Mars. Yeah. Um, you you have to launch at a time when your two cars are very close to one another. Um, 
And furthermore, like if you're jumping off of, uh, see, this is where it fails because you have things like air resistance stuff, but that's okay. We don't even care about the launch itself, but just the idea that there's going to be times when the cars are close to one another and when they're And picturing them like throwing a baseball between the two cars and ignoring air resistance. You know, you can't, if you're in the inner car, you can't throw the baseball directly at the other car because by the time the baseball gets to them, they're going to be way ahead. So you have to aim ahead of them and let them catch up to where it'll be. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a that's the that's the analogy I got NASCAR. Yeah, I like that. Um, so the first mission to Mars, people are saying 2030s. I don't know about 2030s. Yeah, so I think NASA's like public figure is like 2035, which mm-hmm. seems very optimistic. Yeah. So so one of the the primary ideas that will sort of address a lot of the concerns. Now it'll be slow. Here's the thing, though. I, I believe that Martian exploration is going to be just as slow as the moon. Like, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if we don't have mu- humans on Mars until 2060. Like, I, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, um, I wouldn't be surprised if we spend the next 20 years just on the moon. You know, I mean, we spent yeah. 20, well, we spent more than 20 years in low Earth orbit, but we spent 20 years on the space station in low Earth orbit. You yes. know, who's to say we're not going to spend 20 years on the lunar surface. Right. And you can have someone like Elon who is as optimistic as possible, right? Yeah. But unfortunately, the the physics is going to bring you back to reality. And the physics says that um, you have launch windows. And if you're not prepared for those launch windows and you don't have anything, <laughs> everything right, then you're waiting two more years yeah. for that launch window to, to come back to you. And unfortunately, that is going to constrain a lot of advancement so one of the the ideas that that i see is really promising and that a lot of people in the community really um love the idea of is setting up bases on phobos and deimos one mm-hmm. or the other or both and those yeah. are the two martian moons um why would that be important so then you don't have to deal with living on the martian surface you don't have to go into the atmosphere you don't need a big uh launch vehicle to get you off the the moons of, of Mars are very small. I think they're like the size of Houston, basically. They're very small. Uh, so they're easy to get to. They're easy to leave. And basically what you could do with that is a lot of survey work um, for telerobotics and telecommunication work uh, to explore the lunar surface before anyone goes down there. So right now, um, again, I guess we should go back and talk about how long it takes for us – how long it would take for us to communicate – with someone on, or something on Mars. So the Curiosity rover, uh, you know, if you go back to that NASA analogy, when the cars are very close, it's about four minutes one way to send a signal at the speed of light from Earth to Mars to tell mm-hmm. Curiosity to move forward three feet. Uh, when That's those NASCARs at a tenth of a mile per hour. Exactly. And then it just stops and waits for the ground to say, okay, you did the right thing, you're in a safe spot, now do this. Mm-hmm. Um, when those NASCAR cars are on opposite sides of the track, it's like 24 minutes one way so you know we send a command to curiosity it doesn't get until 24 minutes later so it's very hard to do exploration work because you don't want to tell it to go you know drive a mile that way and what if it falls into a cliff or runs over a rock or you know something happens Mm -hmm. you want it to go very slow and methodically and you want to be able to track its uh, its progress Uh, if you are at phobos and demos in martian orbit you can do that nearly real time and so you can basically have Rovers down on the surface, you can have astronauts, you know, with joysticks, basically moving them around real time, recording the results, reporting those back to the Earth, and we could get a lot more uh, surface exploration done a lot more efficiently. Mm-hmm. So that would be kind of one of the early stops. You would either typically do this in 
uh, Martian orbit, or you could land on Phobos and Deimos, which I'm sure have more science uh, opportunities than just being in orbit. Yeah. I've also heard that it would be a, a great place to um, to store materials. So if you wanted to store, um, say if you wanted to store like rations of any kind, mm -hmm. um, storing them on Phobos and Deimos would be a much more, uh, we'll say, safe place because you don't have to worry about taking every piece of cargo you have and diving it into the gravity well of Mars. Yeah, right? and not just the gravity well, but the atmosphere as well. Right. Because yes. landing on landing on Mars is really difficult because the uh, the atmosphere is much thinner than the atmosphere on Earth, so mm -hmm. parachutes don't really work. Um, you know, there's like there's a couple different ways that they've landed things on Mars and all the rovers. You know, one of the options was to basically build in airbags, and so you have yeah. some retro rockets that fire. You might have some parachutes that do a little bit, and then you just inflate these airbags around this rover and you let it smack into the surface at like 30 miles an hour and just bounce around and come to a stop which is definitely not a perfect solution. Um, and then more retro rockets, almost like jetpack things, and Skycrane, I think, is how they did Curiosity. I'm not sure. I might be wrong, but they've used Skycranes before mm -hmm. to like kind of gently set rovers down on their wheels. Uh, but it's tough. It's tough to land things reliably on Mars. And so, yeah, Phobos and Deimos would probably be a lot easier to get things there and keep them there as sort of a safe haven close by. Yeah, and that's something that I see touted by, by people who are in the field like because in essence what they what the the argument is that you don't need a space station because phobos and deimos can serve as your space station yeah right why build a space station when there's already one there yes and and we should utilize it and and i think that that is a a fantastic idea the problem mm -hmm. though is that we would probably end up doing sending astronauts to phobos and deimos and then bringing them back um in preparation right mm -hmm. and so this all adds to the timeline exactly so this is why adds to the timeline it adds to the budget and the cost yes and but the longer you take the more time is for people to say why are we doing this we should cancel this and the administration comes in and says let's not do this anymore and imagine being that close man imagine yeah. you know you've had a couple crews out to phobos and demos they've looked down at, at mars you know from close up mm -hmm. and then we just don't go again oh man this is why we need I, – I like the idea of direct democracy. Do you know what that is? Everyone gets an app on their phone and just votes for what they want? No, Well, okay. Sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But imagine you could pick like three big items a year. And one of the items is like, is it okay if we take one-tenth of one cent out of your paycheck in taxes for the next 50 years to get us on Mars? And no president is allowed to – undo that once it's done you know the administration has to has to uphold the the vote of the people that's that's an idea that i i like to uh because i would i it's true that like you know once you do something for so long people can lose interest in it and when public interest is gone mm -hmm. it's really hard to fight to keep it you you know you we talked about it earlier you saw this with apollo um yeah public interest disappeared and all of a sudden the value of it wasn't there you know, another important thing to think about when we go to Mars is when we have humans on Mars, what is the what is the environment going to be like for them? You know, people get this idea in their head because they watched The Martian, the movie The Martian. And mm -hmm. The Martian's a good movie. Pretty good. It's movie. a really great movie. Um, it's a very accurate movie. Yeah, well but it fails in one regard. 
Very early in the movie, yeah. What is the thing you're thinking about? The the wind. Yes. Basically what causes the emergency in the first place. Yeah, so can you can you explain why that is a failure? Yeah, so so the atmosphere, like we said earlier, the atmosphere on Mars is very thin. And there's not enough particles in the atmosphere to actually get a wind gust that would be strong enough to knock over a rocket or take whatever steel rod that was mm-hmm. and puncture his suit and his and his stomach, you know. Yeah. I think the wind gusts, you know, they get to like maybe thirty miles an hour or something on Mars. They're very weak wind gusts. So well one of the thing. main one of the main problems that sort of exasperates all of this is that you'd have to spend so much time there. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. it's not it's not just bad that the environment is kind of shitty. Because you could you could deal with that. Yeah. But what's bad is you have to deal with it for what? For a long time. Like for most mission profiles have over a year, somewhere around eighteen months. Yeah. So again, based on you know that twenty-six month uh, launch window, and and the travel time, really to come back, you know, you want to come back when they're close again, and you can aim and have a nice home and transfer. There's usually two ways you could do that. One, you could stay on the surface for like a few weeks, which seems mm-hmm. like a wasted opportunity if you're going to spend all that time and money and. 18 months of travel, 16 months of travel time there and back to spend just a few weeks on the surface. Or you could spend, you know, 18 months, somewhere around a year, year and a half. And I would guess that most, you know, mission planners are going to want to do that. Um, So at that point, you know, you're spending uh, eight months there, 18 months on the surface, and then another eight months back. And so when you're in those two eight-month travel periods, there's almost no radiation shielding. It's just what's in your craft. Uh, so you're getting hit with with radiation from deep space constantly, and then you're going to get hit with higher levels of radiation on Mars because they don't have uh, Mars doesn't have a strong magnetosphere that will block all this radiation like the Earth has. Right. So you're getting you're going to be any astronaut who comes back from Mars is never going to fly again because they are going to be way over the limits that NASA sets uh, for lifetime radiation exposure for astronauts. Of course, why would you ever fly those astronauts again? They're national heroes. They're global heroes. You know. Yeah. Uh, and and the temperatures, you know, you're talking about Antarctica. Yeah, it's it gets it gets pleasantly mild in the summertime. I think it get up to like 50, 60 degrees on Mars. Mm-hmm. You know, t-shirt weather. But then at night, it's like minus a lot of degrees. I don't know. Do yeah. you know the offhand what the the value is? Um, it get it gets down to hmm. I'm not sure. It's very cold. I don't want to give a number because I'm probably going to be wrong, but it's very yeah. cold. Yeah. It's colder than obvi- it's obviously colder than you would ever get on Earth. Yeah, um, I want to say like minus a hundred something. Yeah, maybe. yeah. I the number that's in my head in is minus one forty, but yeah, it it might even be colder than that. So yeah. it's it's in, it's incredibly cold. Um, and even you know you you mentioned t-shirt weather. That's a sporadic event right yeah that is not Um, very often yeah in most cases you're going to be dealing with incredibly cold cold temperatures which brings up an entire new problem that hasn't i haven't seen talked about much which is spacesuits because now Mm -hmm. you're going to need spacesuits that can protect you from radiation right that can have temperature control completely both mm-hmm. cooling you down and heating you up. And also, and this is a big one, I think, and, and maybe they'll be able to do this with Artemis, is uh, allow you to actually be mobile, right? Yeah. You're going to have to be incredibly mobile. So yeah. it, ideally, Let's... you would want like a wrap that you could put on your body. 
but yeah. that doesn't exist. I don't. And the and the th- the fourth point that you're missing is is rapid reusability is going to be right, key. right, right, right. And so, so speak before, to that. yeah, yeah. So well, before we dive into that, so temperature controls, we have that on on the, the suits we've used now. We have that on the suits we use in the moon. Those suits get from like plus two hundred to minus two hundred mm-hmm. uh, in in Earth orbit. You know, you're in vacuum when the sun's hitting right. you. It's very hot. It's very cold when the sun's not hitting you. Um, but mobility is a huge one. Um, if you've ever watched, and I'm sure we, I'm sure we've talked about this before on this on the show. If you've ever watched videos of astronauts on the moon, there's great compilations of them falling over and trying to get back up. Because not only is it yeah. it's one sixth gravity, so they don't really know how to move mm-hmm. in that gravity. They've got this giant pack that has all this bunch of weight high on their back, so their center of gravity is off. And it's, I mean, they're stiff suits. You know, they're not things you can move around in much. The suits we use currently uh, on the ISS. There is no thought given to your legs because you do everything with your arms. Mm-hmm. When you're out on a spacewalk, if you watch, they don't ever move their legs. They just sit there. You do everything with your arms. You move with your arms. You do all the work with your arms. Uh, so that's that's a huge one. It's going to have to be able to bend. They're going to have to be able to lift things easy. You know, It's going to have to work with them. Um, and what we found out uh, through Apollo was that the dust on the moon, because there's no natural erosion process, is really sharp. Like if you look at it under a microscope, just jagged edges. Mm-hmm. And so that dust would really cut up the suits. It would get inside of, and it's it's like, a, it sticks to everything. I don't know if it's static cling or what it was, but the, the dust would just get everywhere and they could not get it off. And it would get in the joints, you know, and there's issues if, you know, if it gets in there and it's abrasive and it, you know, rubs through something or causes something to fail. That's another huge issue. But then rapid reusability Right now, to do a spacewalk, typically the road to doing a spacewalk is is months, you know, and we do loop scrubs and we flush out the suits and we, you know, do all this different stuff. And some EVA person could talk at length about it, all the all the things that go into this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the shortest time they've they've ever done a spacewalk, I think they had like a two day notice, and that might be wrong, but you know, to turn it around and start it, I think their like emergency capability is like a two week notice. But typically, you know, it's a month long or, or even longer process. But if you're going to be on the moon or on Mars, you're going to want to. The whole point to be there is to go out and explore. Right. You know, the Apollo astronauts didn't land and stay in their landing capsule. They went out and they explored. So you're going to have to have. And we're going to be doing this for much longer than three days. So you're going to have to have suits that you can flush, you know, the lines and repair and clean and maintain quickly and have a quick turnaround time so that you can come in the door and you know a day or two later you can basically re- refurbish your suit and go out again mm-hmm. uh, or even shorter. Yeah. So one of the, the, the um, potential ideas that I've heard or read a lot about is the concept of living underground mm-hmm. um, because it will address some of the problems. Mm-hmm. It will address – number one, it will provide you um, some – Radiation shielding. Yeah, it will provide you almost complete radiation shielding depending on mm-hmm. how underground you're willing to go. It will provide you some minimal uh, – almost like insulation um, yeah. both from the weather, so things like dust storms, and also from, um, from temperature. temperature because you will be able to build a habitat that doesn't take as much energy to heat. Or cool, depending on yeah. um, what you need to do. I mean, you literally can see structures like that on Earth. You can see yeah. uh, Native American tribes that occupied cave systems for this exact reason. That's um, how the hobbits live. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. 
That's how the it's good enough for hobbits. It's good enough for astronauts. That's true. And so that's a, a concept. And one of the ways we could do that, and that's something that could be done before we even get there, is identify mm-hmm. these areas because we know that Mars was incredibly, incredibly active, volcanically yes. active. And in fact, uh, what is the big? Why do I not remember this? I should. I've talked Olympus about Olympus Mons. A thousand. No, Olympus Mons is the is the large volcano. But what is the uh, what is the fissure? The large crack. Um, what is it called? Valles Mariners. Yes, that's what it is. I, I've talked about it probably a hundred times in, yeah. in the planetarium, and I couldn't think. Yeah. Of it. Um, but th- that it has evidence that at least part of it is due to uh, collapsed lava tubes. We see a lot of, of features that are collapsed. And, some and of it, discovering those lava tubes would be a great thing for astronauts to do in low Martian orbit or from Phobos and Deimos, you know, yes. with uh, robotically remote-controlled uh, rovers. Exactly. To identify and and these also mapping the, the gravity anomaly of the planet. Uh, yeah. That is something that we can do on Earth but not to the level of precision that we would need to do it. So in most cases, I had uh, Dr. Mike Poland on the show, who's a yellow in, in charge of monitoring the Yellowstone volcano, and he does that. He literally does that exact thing where he goes out and tries to identify lava tubes and not just identify where they're at, but identify if and there's any magma moving around in them. That's actually how they'll find out if Yellowstone is, is going to be active, is they okay. can measure the microgravity of these tubes. And if the gravity, microgravity increases, that means that there has been more matter deposited inside of the lava tube, which means that magma is actually flowing. Um, that's indicative of activity, volcanic activity. And so if we could develop a way to measure the gravity anomaly from space in a better way, because we can do it now, but we can't do it to the level of precision we would need to do probably to de- uh, find like particular lava tubes um i don't think we can do it to that precision anyway i think that the 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 resolution of those types of satellites is is well greater than the size of a lava tube um but ideally we would come up with a way to do that and we could even do it with rovers the problem is of course rovers don't explore that much space so this mm-hmm. would be a job for someone who has you know like you were talking about direct control of joysticks of a yeah. rover that can actually move at a respectable pace um identify these structures that we could eventually live in. Yeah. Yeah. So furthermore, um, there's a, there's a, there's a show. I don't know if it was like on Amazon or what it was. I watched it last year and I think there was a new season, but they went, it was like this Martian colony that was being started and they ended up living, I think in, in old lava tubes. They were living underground and they were building out. I don't know. I have to think of what that's called. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what the volcanology of Mars is like today. I don't think that there's any active uh, magma. I don't think there's any volcanoes exploding in, in recent times. But I, I'd be interested in knowing that. Uh, yeah, I would. I would guess that it's probably dead. But yeah, I would. I don't know I for don't certain. No, either. And that's something. Maybe I could get someone on the podcast to talk about that. Um, yeah. Because that is a you know planetary geology is a booming field for this reason, like yeah. understanding. What environments we can explore? What should we expect when we go there, etc.? Uh, but you pose, you know, there's another sort of interesting philosophical question when we go to Mars. I don't know if you, I think it was in Cosmos. Carl Sagan said something along the lines of, "If we go to Mars and we discover that there's even one bacterium there, then that's the Martian, 
and we should allow them to have the planet and we shouldn't go back. Right. That this was yeah. a, a Carl Sagan ideology. Um, and I don't know if he kept it all the way until he died. I don't, I'm not sure, but I, I know that this was something he said at one point that, um, no matter how minuscule the piece of life we find, that's the Martians, and we should let them have their planet. That's impossible. In fact, we've probably already broken that uh, rule because we probably already contaminated it in some way. But you know, that's a it's a huge problem for when we send humans there because yeah. we will like will we is there any way to ensure that we're not bringing bacteria there with humans? Probably not. So every spacecraft that we send to another planetary body is sterilized completely and thoroughly in the lab before launch so that we can be 99.9% certain that we're not introducing any Earth-based organisms or microbes or whatever to the planet that we're exploring, Um, which is easy to do with a rover, you know, a piece of machinery that you can sterilize and doesn't produce things or cells. But if you're going to have four humans living somewhere for 18 months, that's almost guaranteed that at some point, you know, cells or the thing of all the bacteria that live within us and on our, on our bodies, mm-hmm. a lot of that stuff's going to get out at some point, whether it survives or not, you know, it's going to be very difficult for us not to contaminate as soon as human beings are there. But that is, that is a really great ethical question is, you know, no matter how insignificant, what is our responsibility to intervene or to stand back and, you know, does yeah. that mean cease all, all rover, like all exploration? And we just kind of, you know, observe from a distance just from orbit or. Yeah. I mean, my belief is like, I don't know, like go there. That's, that's yeah. I'm not, my, I my don't care personal... about waiting for f- 5 billion years when the sun explodes just to preserve yeah. it for six bacterium. Um, yeah. My, my initial hot take would be if it's simple life like that, then we should definitely go there and explore and yeah, see what happens. I should uh, you know, say if it's just, complex life that is clearly in the process of evolution and, and adapting, then maybe we should let it go. Yeah. For the people who are um, going to nitpick what podcast. I say in the comments, when I said the sun explodes, it was obviously a play on words. People, I, the sun's not actually going to explode. <laughs> okay. So don't leave me a damn review telling me that. I'm going to, I'm going to sign up as a user with a different name and I'm going to, I'm going to pick you on that. All right. Well, then I'm going to jump out of my apartment window and it's going to be your fault. And I only live what on floor, the second what? floor. So oh, okay, that's fine. I'm just going to fall into the grass and kind of just look weird to my other people. Yeah. In a room. I won't even feel bad about that, but I'm going to wait until there's kids playing outside and then it's going to, you know, you're going to potentially put those children in harm. So there's a lot of kids in the world. And that's on you. And I'm going to tattoo on my forehead. This is Nate's fault. So if you put my name on your forehead permanently, I'll be impressed. Will you? Yeah. I'm going to get, what is, what is a post Malone have on his face? Oh, I don't know. He has like no sleep or some shit or always sad. Something like that. I'm going to get Nate's fault tattooed in my eyes above my eyes. (laughs) So expect that. That's Um, an honor. Yeah. Is there, I I feel like we've covered most of what I wanted to cover. Is there anything else that you think is important to consider when we're talking about Martian exploration? I feel like we've covered pretty much everything that I wanted to talk about, everything that I came prepared to talk about. Okay, sounds good. Then we're yeah. done. Then we're done. We're done. Adios, amigoses. We're all out. Bye bye. Right. Join us next week for.
Ladies and gentlemen, don't forget to rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts. Not two, not one, not three, not four, five. If you can't do five, if you can't count to five, then what are you going to learn about Mars? You can't learn about Mars. You can't get to five. One, two, three, four, five stars. Not two stars. Grade A, medium rare, filet mignon, mignon, filet mignon, grade A podcast. Leave a rating. Type grade A. I'll make it easy for you. Okay? We've been on the grade A train. Go to Apple Podcasts right now. Look at the reviews. What do all of them say? They say grade A. What do they say? They say grade A. So just do it. Shut your mouth and just do it. Sometimes you have to be willing to be told what to do. And right now is one of those times. Five stars, Apple Podcast, grade A, baby. That was a pretty good episode. Thanks for getting to this point. Thanks for making it all the way through. I hope you enjoyed it. Tell me what you think. Tell me what you think about people's predictions about when we'll get to Mars. Do you think Elon Musk is optimistic? He says 2035. I think he's insane. I think he's insane. I don't think that's going to happen. I wouldn't be surprised. See, I. this is weird, though. I go through, like, cycles of optimism and pessimism. And right now, I'm sort of in a pessimistic mindset. And part of that is due to the fact that I just talked to Nate for over an hour about it. And you realize that the level of technological innovation that's going to be necessary is seemingly far beyond what will be done by 2030. Because there will be things that slow. I mean, think about what's happening right now. Think about the coronavirus uh, epidemic, pa- pandemic rather. Think about how that is derailing a lot of lab work. You know, a lot of people at national labs, at, at NASA facilities, etc., are not able to get the work done that they need to get done. A lot of the people that I work with at RIT, at Rochester Institute of Technology, people that work on detectors, people that work on telescopes that are eventually going to go into space and those sorts of things, those are all going to be delayed because those people can't be in the lab. They can't be working on what they need to. And this isn't like, you know, a 2020 problem. There's always hurdles to overcome. Timelines are always optimistic. And I don't think that's any different than our plans to get to Mars now. So, I don't know, man. I'm trying to pump out a bunch of podcasts during the quarantine. Let me know if there's someone you want me to talk to or a topic you want covered. Let me know. I got a ton scheduled. My schedule has been super wonky in 2020. Like, super. It's been weird. I've had, like, meetings on on uh, the university campus at weird times. So it's seems like my ability to record podcasts throughout, like, January through now has been really stifled by the fact that it's tough to carve out time that other people are willing to talk to me because people don't want to record at 7 p.m. You know, they want to do like 3 p.m. type of deal. And so now that that's out of the question, I can start pumping these babies out so I can hone my focus and get this shit going again. So what what have you all been doing in these trying times? Watching any shows, Tiger King? If you don't have Netflix and you're not watching Tiger King, you are certified dumb certified dumb grade a dumbass certified stupid you need to be watching tiger king that show is insanity one of the most crazy netflix has this ability to make a documentary that i have not seen before in my existence in my lifetime these people are insane the gabriel fernandez documentary is insane the tiger king documentary is insane 
don't uh don't f with cats is insane i'm sure there's some i'm forgetting they're all nuts but tiger king is like i'm sucked in and this is the problem with being married let me tell you the problem with being married. let me tell you why i should never get married because when you watch tv shows you have to coincide your viewing so that it fits both your schedules you and your spouse and that's bullshit okay and that is grade a bullshit because in an ideal world i would just watch all eight episodes right in a row from start to finish without even stopping that's what i would do but man i don't know what it is about tv shows but they've caught this weird um they've caught this weird part of my brain where i'm not good at sitting down to watch a movie like a two and a half hour movie i cannot do a two and a half hour movie i would rather jump into the interstate than watch a two and a half hour movie i just can't do i can't do the superhero things i can't do any of the movies but tv shows i can watch eight straight hours i don't get it i don't understand it they have somehow crafted this incredible idea 